Tomorrow on AOA, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex, joins the program for a look at these volatile markets. Tune in next time to AOA. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to talk with Jim McCormick of agmarket.net here in just a moment. Had some news in the overnight that roiled the wheat market, though it appears as though the market is backing off. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. And then in segment two, we're going to focus in on the growing dispute between Mexico and the U.S. on their importation of GMO corn. Ryan Legrand, the president and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council, will join us for some recent updates on that case as it moves forward. And in segment three, we're going to talk with Dr. Paul Sundberg of the Swine Health Information Center about the domestic swine diseases he's keeping an eye on as we work into the dog days of summer, while also keeping a watch on what's developing with African swine fever around the world. Before we dive into all of that, however, let's take a look at what is moving in these markets. Joining us now, Jim McCormick of agmarket.net. And Jim, wheat market sure got a wake up in the middle of last night, didn't they? Hey, good morning, Mike. Yes, it did. Uh, you know, uh, we've been obviously Russia and Ukraine's been at war for over the year, over a year now, and a lot of the headlines just haven't affected the wheat market recently. But last night, um, with it blowing up that dam, it definitely got the market's attention at least briefly. We saw everything rally hard overnight, but we are giving back quite a bit of that rally, plain and simple, because it is a disaster for the people who live along the river. But the reality is, Mike, it's really not going to have a huge impact on the overall production of agriculture coming out of Ukraine this year. Now, that is interesting, Jim, because we've already seen production curtailed so much over the past year due to the, the war and the violence that this isn't going to cause that much of an impact on the wheat side, you're thinking. Well, that's what it is. I mean, if you're looking at that region, it may account for maybe roughly 10 to 15 percent of the Ukrainian anticipated wheat production. If you lost it, maybe you're talking one, one and a half, maybe max two million metric tons. Not a lot, because you've got to remember, this area, Mike, has also been under heavy shelling. This is right on the war front of the war. I mean, that's part of the reason people are speculating why this dam gave. The Russians are on one side of the river, the Ukrainians on the other. There's argument that the Russians blew the dam to keep the Ukrainians from getting that spring-slash-summer offensive going. So there's probably is not as much farming going on there now as it would have been, you know, obviously pre-war. But it, like I said, so the market had an initial reaction higher, but then it just kind of fizzled back. And it has fizzled back. On this overnight jump, did we test any chart uh, technical uh, levels that you were keeping an eye on, Jim? Or was it just it was an overnight, it was thin trade, now we're back to talking about what matters. 
Well, what it did is interesting. Like the Kansas City wheat, it surged quite a bit higher. I mean, it got up to 847. It took out the 100-day moving average. It took out the 50-day moving average. So you ran on quite a bit of stops. If you could have closed above it, Mike, I think technically, on the, at least on the Kansas City, it would have been a good technical move. The Chicago only could even get over the 50-day on that news. So technically it looked good. But if we falter back and end up closing back below those moving averages, averages, excuse me, it would look like a little bit of a technical failure. So uh, the close is going to be important today. All right, folks, keep your eye on those markets. Keep your eye on what happens from that Black Sea region. But Jim, let's turn the focus back to the fundamentals here domestically. We continue to see a grain market concerned about heat and dryness across the northern Corn Belt. What's your read on the weather and how's the market going to adjust to it this week? Well, right now, I would argue the weather is a little bit more up in the air at this point in time. The crop ratings, Mike, I know you saw probably dropped hard, especially in the eastern Corn Belt where I'm at. It is very, very dry, and a lot of producers are concerned. Where it gets tricky is there is rain coming. A lot of that rain is forecasted in the 10 to 15-day portion of the longer-range maps. The European model is the one that's a lot more wetter than the – or excuse me, the American model, the GFS model is a lot more wetter than the European model, and the American model goes a little bit out further, 16 days. It's hitting at microfinal, going to get an atmospheric change, and we're going to start actually bringing rain to some of the driest portions of the country. So that's limiting the market's ability to rally, but it doesn't want to break on that news yet because the fact is you're still looking seven to ten days out before that rain comes, and you know everyone who is wishing for a rain knows how that is. How many times, Mike, have you seen that forecast say it's going to rain seven, eight, nine days out? When you get there, it just doesn't materialize. So the market's watching for that rain. But until we get a little bit closer in the long, shorter range portions of the maps, it looks like we're going to hold a little bit under the market, hopefully. Jim, what are you seeing out on the countryside as far as old crop corn basis as we get deeper into summer here? Is it hanging up? It's hanging in there right now. I think you've got to be a little bit cautious for your producer with old crop grain at this point in time. You've seen the July step spreads, July D spreads get very, very volatile recently. And I think as we transition, especially if we start getting moisture and the producers start feeling a little bit better about their crop, uh, you know, prospects of this upcoming crop, I think they'll be a little bit more willing to let it go. If I got to guess where the corn is, I think the West, interesting enough, has got a little bit tighter, a little bit more supply than the East. The East, in general, had very good crops this past year. Prices were good. Bases were good. A lot of $7 corn. They moved it out of the system. There's not a lot of corn in Illinois, we don't think. The West, on the other hand, has a little bit more because they've been fighting the drought. So, uh, you know, the re you know, keep an eye on your regional basis. Um, you're going to get quick bids, but I would encourage people to take advantage of it when that happens. All right. Grab it when it's offered. That's for sure. Jim, let's take a look at the soybean market here. Same questions. We're watching that emerging dryness. Obviously, not as much a concern quite yet on the as it is on the corn side. Where do you see beans going from here? Well, I'm hoping they can get a little bit of a push back up. I mean, the, the, if you look at the you know the old crop beans, the July beans, they're trying to take out the 20-day moving average. If they can, they'll make a move up to the 50-day moving average, 14.10 roughly, another 50 cents. But if you can get up, you know, if we would get that rally, I'm going to encourage producers to go ahead and move it. The reality is, Mike, we are facing a world competition, and right now the world sellers in general. Brazil is selling grain, both corn and beans, cheaper than us. So, you know, we're, the rallies we're getting are supply-driven rallies. Um, you take that supply fear off, the weather moderates, whatever it is, the odds are we're going to go down, unfortunately, because the market's going to have to drop lower as we get into the summer and fall if we have a good crop to try to get us price competitive because we're just not there yet. Jim, looking out over the summer, of course, we've got export news ahead of us. Are you expecting the export news to just get progressively worse for U.S. exporters here as we get deeper into summer? 
I, I, I do, especially if you're fearful of the corn. Um, like I said, if you're an old crop, if you got old crop corn, you can be a little bit nervous. I mean, the reality is Brazil is what one and a half, two, three percent harvested on this monster corn crop. So the reality is they've got this fresh crop. They need to sell it. Storage is a problem. So we are not going to be competitively priced for corn throughout the rest of the summer. Mike, I saw quotes late last Friday that suggested the. Um, the Brazilians were willing to sell corn roughly 65 to 85 cents cheaper than our price was for September and October delivery. And that is something that, to me, is a very big concern, that Brazil is offering corn cheaper than we are during our harvest. So uh, that is something I think is going to weigh on exports as we go through the summer, unfortunately. Jim, as we get through this week, any other big events you're watching for producers need to prepare for in your mind? Well, we do have Friday. We do have that WASDA report on Friday. The government always is a little bit of a surprise for people. Um, you know, we are looking in general for ending stocks to grow due to the weak export demand. We think they're probably going to cut exports. The one wild card everyone's looking for, especially on new crop corn, is will the government lower the national trend yield? Historically, they don't. Mike, historically, they leave it alone. But when you look at the crop ratings, look how dry the eastern corn belt is. You can make an argument that national trend yield of 181.5 is way too high, and that could be where the bullish surprise could come on Friday. Keep an eye out for that WASDE report coming out Friday morning. Folks, we've been talking with Jim McCormick here of agmarket.net. Jim, as always, thanks for joining us on AOA. Thank you. I appreciate being on. And folks, stay here. We'll have a conversation with Brian Legrand, President and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council, about Mexican GMO corn imports when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416.
Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We're going to turn our focus to trade here this morning. Back in 2020, the president of Mexico said that soon the Mexicans will not be importing any more GMO corn from the United States. Now, that was in 2020. Since then, several years of consultations and conversations have happened between the United States and Mexico on this issue. But now it appears as though more formal steps are preparing to take place. Joining us for an update on this situation is Ryan Legrand. He serves as president and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having, having me. If we could, let's get a setting of uh, set the table rather of where things sit today. Ryan, what are the deadlines from the Mexican government which, with regard to this GMO corn issue? And what are you watching here as this goes forward? Last Friday, the USTR uh, initiated dispute settlement consultations with Mexico over this decree. And so this process is going to play out, I think, over the next uh, 75 days or so that they've got to, to manage these consultations. And if uh, nothing comes, uh, if a decision is not made or an agreement is not made in that time, the next logical step would be to move to a full dispute settlement panel where you're going to have arbiters on both sides uh, seeing the case, seeing the evidence, and making a decision from there. And Ryan, the question at the core of this is, can the Mexican government unilaterally ban corn imports from the United States? Is that right? They cannot. Yeah, that is the question. That's what they would, would like to do. And right now it's specifically for white corn. Uh, but their decree says that uh, they'll look for substitutions for the GM yellow corn that's coming in, which is the, the large majority of, of what they're importing. And, and the fact is that this is a clear violation of USMCA. Uh, USMCA has a, a biotechnology chapter in which Mexico is bound to follow uh, science-based approach when making these decisions around biotechnology. So, Ryan, this is the thing. Now, as we head into this formal consultation pro uh, process, we'll hear the claims from both sides brought forward to, to neutral judges. What What is Mexico claiming here? What's their argument to be able to uh, to ban this import of U.S. corn? 
Well, the arguments that we've seen are, are not scientific in nature. Uh, they're, they're, they're cultural, they're precautionary, and they, they say in case it may cause harm to human health, which we know that, uh, that that is not the case. GM crops have been proven for, for decades to be safe. And uh, so those, those are kind of their, their major arguments. They, they don't want, uh, you know, they, they see corn as being, Mexico as being the birthplace for corn. And, and so there's a lot of cultural and heritage type issues, I think, that are going on, especially as, you know, with AMLO, he's a, he's a real defender of, of, of their culture and their heritage when it comes to, to corn. So I think this is driving a lot of it. And, and again, we get back to what they signed on in, in this trade agreement, and that is to use a science-based approach, not a cultural or heritage-based approach here. So, Ryan, when you're presenting or, or when the United States is presenting our reasons for continuing to be allowed to export underneath the rules of this USMCA treaty, what sort of claims will the U.S. side be making? What sort of scientific evidence will we bring to bear? Well, just everything that, that's out there that proves that GM is safe. You know, I, I'm I'm not sure what all studies they're they're going to use, but uh, we have decades of evidence proving that this is safe, and I'm I'm sure that that's the evidence that they're going to be using. That makes sense, right? So now, as these consultations take place, as you mentioned, we've got a 75-day timeline here. Walk us through what to expect in that 75 days, and then what happens after. Of course, this deadline uh, for Mexico is January 1st, 2024. That's getting close, isn't it? It's getting very close, and it's causing problems with, with plant. It already has caused problems with planting decisions of, of farmers here in the United States. And what to expect in the next several weeks, I, I would say it's probably going to be quiet. You know, these are, are, I'm assuming, going to be, this is the first case that we've had of this nature under USMCA. So I doubt a lot of it's going to be public. I think it's going to be, you know, discussed with USTR and uh, Secretary of Economy there in Mexico behind closed doors. And that will be Mexico's opportunity to present any scientific evidence that they have to, uh, you know, to make this decree valid, which, which again, we don't think they have it. And, and so we don't think we'll hear a whole lot. And this is not going to move as fast as, as any of our producers want it to move. Uh, it's going to be quiet for a while, which I know a lot of people don't like. Uh, but eventually, I think we'll come to the, the right decision, which is to remove this decree. I hope that's what, what happens in the end. So, Ryan, let's say that is what happens. We get to the end of this. The court upholds the scientific backing of GMO crops that we've relied on so much in this country for the past 30 years. What if Mexico decides to stick to it? A, is that possible? And B, what can we do if that's indeed the case? You know, I think in in a setting where we have a dispute panel and we get a ruling in our favor and where Mexico decides, no, we're just going to go stick with this and go with it anyway, I think the next logical step would be to apply tariffs on to uh, Mexican goods coming into the United States, which we certainly don't want. Uh, we import a lot of fruits and vegetables from them and, and, and other goods, and, and, and we don't see the, want to see the prices of, of those go up. Uh, but that is kind of how these things work out. If, if, if we win, we have the right to apply duties, tariffs to their products coming in. All right. So that is the stick part of these sort of negotiations. Ryan, it seems as though we've had a quiet period over the past maybe 10 years on biotech issues and crops. It seemed like that was a huge concern for importing countries 20 years ago. Now it seems as though Mexico almost is an outlier on that front. From your perspective, you're much more plugged into this than I am. Is that your sense too? Is the world broadly getting more adjusted to GM crops? 
I think they are. Acceptance is growing worldwide. You know, you've, you've got ex- exceptions like Europe and, and now Mexico um, and, and even parts of Africa, I think, where Europe has had a, a major influence over their policies. They've kind of uh, worked to implement those anti-GM policies. But outside of those two areas, uh, those three areas, I guess, you, you don't see a whole lot of widespread anti-GM movements. Uh, Mexico it was a surprise for many, but if you look at AMLO's closely, AMLO being uh, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, he, his personally held beliefs are that GM is, is, is not good for human health. So he's sticking to this. This is the, the, the ideal of the president that's being passed down through uh, his, his deputies and, and secretaries and being implemented that way. That makes sense. Ryan, I'd like to ask you about the the community pushing for science here in this negotiation. Obviously, Mexico doesn't just buy GM corn from the United States. Those rail lines that run into Mexico run through the U.S. up into Canada. Have the Canadians been consulted on any of this? Would they be impacted by any of Mexico's moves here? Well, they certainly could. Canada ships canola through the United States to Mexico. Um, and they also ship it on vessels uh, to the to the west coast of Mexico. I think they've signed on as an observer. Um, so I think that's as far as they've gone uh, thus far. But I'm I'm not sure kind of what they're thinking and what their next steps may be as this case proceeds. Okay, but it's definitely something they're watching as well. It's not just a U.S. impact. Ryan, let's take a step back, if you would. We've seen a lot of upheavals to global grain trade over the past three years between COVID and the war in Ukraine. As you look forward, what areas of the globe have you optimistic for U.S. grain exports? Southeast Asia uh, is one where we would like to to, to get a stronger foothold. Uh, but look to our, our traditional markets. Mexico is still going to continue to to import uh, large amounts of corn despite this dispute going on. Uh, Japan, Korea, uh, even Canada. So those those uh, traditionally strong customers, I think, will 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 stay there. Competition is is getting you know more and more. We're seeing more competition every day, especially coming from Brazil. So it's going to be tougher to get into those markets going forward. But those are the ones that we look at as as kind of uh, our anchor markets. Those core groups, those customers who have been partners with American farmers for a long time in buying their grain from us, folks. Ryan, I'm glad to hear that Mexico is still going to be a buyer, even as this dispute plays out this year. You expect to see exports continue, it sounds like. We do. So yellow corn is not included in the decree as as being outright banned for now. Uh, The concern is there's language in that decree that says yellow corn for animal feed imports will be substituted uh, when when appropriate, when they're able to substitute those. And, and then you're talking 16, 17 million tons to our largest corn exporter. And I just don't see how that's going to be possible uh, in the first place. But uh, it certainly has the livestock producers in Mexico very concerned. It does. And folks, it's definitely an issue worth watching. Could spiral into a tariff war, depending on how these things play out. Our thanks to Ryan Legrand. He's serving as the president and CEO of the U.S. Grains Council. Ryan, as always, thank you so much for joining us on AOA and good luck as this fight moves forward over the year. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to get an update on hog health, both domestically and globally, with Dr. Paul Sunberg of the Swine Health Information Center. Leave it here for more AOA.
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at the market trade on this Tuesday. We see grains and oil seeds relatively mixed after overnight strength as wheat led in the overnight session. Following news that a Ukrainian dam was blown up, fighting has escalated between Russia and Ukraine, and Russia says it doesn't see a way forward to renew the Black Sea grain deal. Also, Australian wheat production now expected to decrease by a third due to extreme drought and the second driest May on record. There is legitimate concern from traders that the balance Balance sheets globally could tighten up for wheat on Friday's USDA WASDE report. Now, corded soybeans trading higher here on the day Tuesday as U.S. corn and soybean crop ratings came in below expectations Monday afternoon, giving us some support. Now, also gains continue to be capped, though, by farmers selling in both Brazil and the United States with additional pressure coming from the forecast that continue to advance the anticipated pivot in the weather pattern. We will not likely see a sudden shift to ample moisture, but the favorable change in rainfall chances continues to develop here as we get into next week. So that's something we're going to keep our eyes on very, very closely here throughout this market trade. Over in livestock, hogs getting some support here after a big day on Monday with cutouts gaining $434, but bellies gaining $24.51. No doubt that seems to be supporting hog futures here early on the trading day Tuesday. Well, the cattle markets are a little bit more mixed here, maybe seeing just a bit of a pullback and some early pressure here as we get into Tuesday's session. Feeder cattle trying to keep pace with the strength of live cattle, but backing off a little bit here. We'll continue to watch and see how cash country develops here this week and see what activity looks like there. We were 7 to $10 higher in many areas last week. That's Check of the Market Trade. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. 
So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA moves along today, and we're going to turn our focus to the hog industry, one of the few markets that's up on the day. Hogs are up big. Lean hogs, July contract up $1.95. Fall, October up 87 cents on the day. But we're not going to talk markets necessarily. We're going to talk hog health. Joining us next is Dr. Paul Sunberg. He serves as the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center in Ames, Iowa. We enjoy checking in with Dr. Sunberg once a month for an update on swine diseases, both the domestically and globally. Dr. Sunberg, thanks so much for joining us on AOA today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's kick things off if we can here domestically. Dr. Sunberg, I know we had some concerns this past year about PERS and their variants. Can you fill us in? What's PERS looking like across the United States here today? Yeah, Mike, uh, right now, the latest report that we have is that there's a moderate decrease from April to May in PERS in the sow herds. And, and they, um, in finishing herds, it's uh, similar from April to May. It's still pretty steady. So the issue here is we're still probably weaning um, positive pigs into the nurseries and into the finishers. And so that supports the efforts that we're doing on biosecurity and trying to make sure that we're doing everything we can do to contain disease if it breaks on on wean to markets. The L1C variant is still well um, in the Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri corridor. Um, it's still breaking in, in that, those three states. And then there's lesser infections that go on toward the east, um, as far east as Ohio at this time. All right, but it's got to be good news for those producers to at least see a decrease in the uh, the instance of PERS here this year. Paul, what are you seeing on the other domestic disease front? Anything picking up that slack? Yeah, anything picking up the, flat, the slack? Well, for coronaviruses, PED is relatively stable, too. Um, And those hey, are no, breaking in Sunberg, we, we lost you there for a second, sir. We were talking about uh, circovirus or coronavirus there. What did you see? Okay. Um, stable overall this country. Missouri and North Carolina. Um, sow, sow herds are breaking, so the concern is also weaning positive pigs. For Delta coronavirus, Delta coronavirus within its expected limits after it was high for the last couple of months. So coronavirus is, is pretty steady right now, the overall coronavirus. Um, for mycoplasma, there's an increase, a substantial increase in wean-to-market pigs. Um, but our group of advisory veterinarians that we show this data to every month says that it's probably due to a co-infection with PERS or influenza, and so that's all good. Um, for last one is for porcine circovirus. For circovirus, uh, just some information. Right now, we're starting to show positive tests. The the um, results of the positive tests 
by region. So it's a PCR positive test. How strong that test is by region, that can give producers and veterinarians some more information about how hot it is in a region versus just whether it's positive or negative. Okay, and so that data is going to be coming out. Paul, will that be released monthly for those uh, growers? Yeah, it'll be released monthly. It's in our newsletter, and people can sign up for Hey, Paul, we are having a bit of a hard time getting in touch with you. I'm going to have our producer disconnect with you, give you a call right back, and we'll have this conversation about global hog health in just a moment, see if we can get a more secure connection. Folks, we'll be right back here with Dr. Paul Sunberg. We're going to get him right back on the line, see if we can't get a little clearer call before we start talking about what's developing here with African swine fever, not just domestically, but around the world. As we wait to get Dr. Sunberg back on the line, I do just want to hit some of the topics that Jim McCormick mentioned earlier. We've got the crop condition data. 64% of the U.S. corn crop is rated in good to excellent condition uh, as of yesterday. That's down from 69% last week. So that is that 5% drop in corn condition. This is in that good to excellent category there for corn. That's the, the big drop that the trade is watching this early in the year. 85% of the crop is emerged. It's up 70 from 72% here just a week earlier. And 96% of the corn is in the ground as of now. On the soybean front, six 62% of corn of soybeans rather are in good to excellent condition. Now this is the first tally of the season for soybeans. We don't have any previous weeks to compare that to. 74% of those beans had emerged. That's up from 56% a week earlier. This hot and dry temperature is encouraging rapid plant growth. The concerns are growing that those roots maybe don't have any moisture to sink down into. Spring wheat, of course, a crop that we saw delayed planting on due to the snow across the Dakota region region. Spring wheat is rated 64% good to excellent. Like soybeans, that's the uh, first accounting for the year. Forecast analysts were anticipating it to be closer to 66%, so 2% below expectations. We do have Dr. Paul Sundberg back on the line with us. Paul, thank you for that update on U.S. diseases. If we can, I'd like to turn our focus global. You made a note about African swine fever in Russia. This is a concern, it sounds like. Sure. Uh, African swine fever is continuing to move in Russia and Eastern Europe. Um, a couple of very large farms in uh, Russia broke, just recently broke with ASF. There's been over 100,000 animals that have been affected with that on two different farms. And it looks like, interesting, as they've uh, tried to trace back and figure out how and why this has happened, it very well may be related to feed contamination with ASF. That They've had some positive feed samples that have been on those farms, and that could be the cause of that outbreak in Russia. That's interesting, Dr. Sundberg. Are the Russian authorities still working with the global uh, veterinary medicine community to keep ASF tracking up to date? Well, they're still reporting to the uh, World Organization of Animal Health, so that's a good thing. So um, that's where we get the information from uh, Russia as well as from other information around the world. So that World Organization of Animal Health that's located in Paris is the central source for that type of reporting. So we've got Europe still being a concern for ASF. Do we have ASF concerns elsewhere? I'm thinking Asia, the Dominican Republic, still an issue. Paul, what are you watching? Yeah, I'll tell you what, there's a couple of things. One thing, um, the European Food Safety uh, Agency just came out with a report that uh, indicated that 
um, the, the number of outbreaks on commercial farms in Europe has decreased by 79% 2021 compared to 2022. And there's been a decrease in outbreak in wild boar in Europe by 40%. Now that's, that's significant. That's good news. Um, there's multiple factors probably involved there. There's been a big loss of small farms where a lot of those infections was taking place. So part of it is the loss of farms and part of it is regulations. But um, there may be some positive news that's coming out of Eastern Europe with that. Uh, as far as the vaccine, oh, go ahead, Mike. No, I was just, I was just going to that. That is good news, there, Doctor Sonberg. Yeah, yeah. And as far as the vaccines, uh, an update on ASF vaccine. This is really an important, um, uh, uh, an important movement uh, in the testing of ASF vaccines. Vietnam has become kind of the epicenter of the testing for ASF vaccines. They've got. Uh, multiple vaccines from USDA on Plum Island, the USDA Agri uh, Agricultural Research Service that they're testing. And um, they're working on figuring out uh, the safety and efficacy of those vaccines. There's some good progress there, and it looks good. It relates to the Dominican Republic, Mike. Um, the Dominican Republic now is starting to work with Vietnam to test the use of their vaccine uh, in the Dominican Republic. And um, that's, a, that's a big step for regional control. That may be a big step down in the Dominican Republic to help protect the U.S., to help to protect the rest of the Caribbean from the movement of this virus. That is fascinating, Dr. Sunberg. So are there, are there at least three different vaccine candidates out there in trial right now, or is it mainly just that one from Vietnam? No, there are, well, there are multiple that are being developed around the world. But that, in Vietnam, there are three different companies that have different vaccines that they're testing. Um, USDA developed some vaccines. They license those to companies in Vietnam for testing for safety and efficacy. They still aren't, um, they still aren't approved for distribution, but it looks, the testing looks good, and that's a positive step. It's positive enough that the Dominican Republic and Vietnam are, are talking about um, using that vaccine to help control the outbreak in the DR. It'll be good if we can get a leg up over this African swine fever, especially before, before it ever tries to make its home here on U.S. soil. Dr. Sunberg, while we're talking here, I'd like to turn the focus to foot and mouth disease. I understand South Korea had a reoccurrence of that. Can you fill us in? Yeah, this is um, uh, an outbreak in, in South Korea. It's been the first time that that's happened in, um, in multiple years. In four, over four years, there's been 11 new outbreaks reported in southern South Korea, um, primarily small farms, primarily wild boar. It's the same type of thing as we see with ASF. There's a nidus of infection that keeps uh, circulating around. And um, uh, South Korea is working on addressing that, taking out the infected herds and making sure that there's vaccine use such that they can control that infection in that area. And I also understand China reported an FMD case last week or last, last month, rather, to the World Organization of Animal Health. Is that standard for China, Dr. Sunberg? Yeah, yeah. The FMD continues to be in China. They continue to report to the World Organization of Animal Health. So that's pretty much business as usual.
Well, thank you for that answer. Appreciate the quickness, folks. We've been talking with Dr. Paul Sundberg of the Swine Health Information Center. You can learn more and keep up on their work at swinehealth.org. Stay tuned. We'll have more AOA coming up in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Will Stafford, a member of the CHS Government Affairs Team in Washington, D.C., is going to join us for an update on that 2023 Farm Bill. Where do things stand? The current Farm Bill expires on September 30th of this year, which means that Congress either needs to write a new one and pass a new one or extend the current one before then. If we don't get a new Farm Bill written this summer, Will, what happens when the current Farm Bill expires? Technically, the law reverts back to what we call permanent law, which is 1930s and 40s law. And it has things like minimum support prices for different crops that kick in at different starts of new crop years. The big one that you would start hearing about if there is a lapse in the farm bill, folks call it the dairy cliff. And that would be January 1, you would see that minimum support price for milk kick in and uh, and get pretty pricey overnight. Will, from CHS's perspective, what are the policies of the cooperative and its owners in this new farm bill? First and foremost, we hear about the importance of the farm safety net, whether that's crop insurance programs or uh, the Title I commodity programs like ARC and PLC. So making sure that those are available, strong, and, and working well for them is always our number one concern. In addition, we, we play a big role in advocating 
on the trade title. We just had one of our executive vice presidents testifying in front of the House Agriculture Committee last week on those programs. And then we're looking at the conservation title very, uh, very closely as well, not only for new opportunities for, for co-ops like CHS and maybe ways that we can become more partners with USDA and getting some of those conservation programs out the door to our owners, uh, but also just making sure that those programs stay voluntary, not mandatory for our owners to use and make sure that they're not attached to anything like their ability to obtain crop insurance or anything like that. Will, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you. And thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Get on board. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Before we go for the day, we've got some global stories that impact agriculture. Wanted to provide an update. Concern in Europe sparked here for six months ago as European fuel blenders, folks who are buying crude oil, petroleum oil, you name it, blending it into feedstocks. They were buying biodiesel out of China and using that to achieve lower greenhouse gas emissions on their fuel produced in Europe. The challenge became here just about three weeks ago, tests were done on some of that Chinese biofuel that was imported by uh, European blenders, and they found that they're potentially were many fraudulent shipments heading to this group. Now, the Chinese Association of Biodiesel Producers says, quote, we are deeply concerned about the potential fraud in the exports. We have zero tolerance for such behaviors, for such violations, and we will be cracking down. This is coming after the European Waste-Based and Advanced Biofuels Association said that those surging Chinese biofuel shipments were th threatening local suppliers in Europe and potentially fraudulent coming from feedstuff stocks that weren't approved for use under the greenhouse gas rules in many of these European countries. We don't yet have the full results of that audit uh, that these European firms will be doing on Chinese biodiesel, but it has certainly created a black eye for that Chinese industry. It'll be interesting to see if American biodiesel producers can capitalize on some of this concern over how well China is adhering to the laws. We'll continue to keep an update on that story, and we've also got additional 
confirmation or additional information on the U.S.-Mexico dispute. As we heard from Ryan Legrand earlier in the program last week, the U.S. Trade Representative announced they are filing a dispute resolution uh, settlement under the U.S.-Mexico agreement. That happened last week, as Ryan mentioned. It's not just U.S. Grains Council who are keeping an eye on this. The National Corn Growers Association also obviously very interested in the outcome of this. And Tom Haig, president of the NCGA, said, quote, Mexico's actions, which are not based on sound science, have threatened the financial well-being of corn growers and our nation's rural communities. We are deeply appreciative of Ambassador Catherine Tai and USTR for moving this process forward and thankful for the efforts of Secretary Tom Vilsack and members of Congress for standing up for farmers in such a meaningful way. As Ryan mentioned, that dispute settlement uh, resolution settlement procedure will take 75 days, and uh, I guess we'll be expecting more radio silence as this thing moves towards some form of a conclusion. Also, over the next 75 days, we are going to see the global climate trends, at least according to our friend John Baranek, move deeper and deeper into El Nino territory. This might be good news for a lot of growers across the Southern Plains and in the Corn Belt here in the United States, but it's bad news for growers in the Southern Hemisphere, notably Australia. Early on Tuesday, Australia's uh, crop uh, ag department came out and said their production of winter crops, which of course Australia being down under, we're heading into winter for that country. They expect winter production to fall from record highs, which they saw this year on the back of ample moisture as they were in that La Nina weather scenario. They expect to see declines by more than 30%. This is based on the forecast brought about by that El Nino weather pattern in the Southern Hemisphere. Australia is the second largest wheat exporter, and it sells predominantly into Asia. Australia is the one supplying China, Indonesia, and Japan. And here over the past six months, we've seen China work to rebuild bridges with the ag industry in Australia, bridges that had been strained by trade disputes stretching back to 2018. China was hungry for some of that wheat, it did appear, but now it's sounds as though that Australian crop might be shrinking. Official numbers, according to the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Forestry out of Australia, say total winter crop production is forecast to fall by 34%. They're pegging production at 44.9 million metric tons in 2023-2024. That puts it in perspective, down 34% from last year, be about 3% below the 10-year average of 46.4 million metric tons. This weather is also going to have an impact on nutrient releases from U.S. farms. This, of course, has been an ongoing concern predominantly through the central part of the country as that hypoxic zone, the dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi in the Gulf of Mexico, has been growing over the past several years. Well, we've released, uh, or I should say we've seen, the Gulf dead zone hypoxia forecast for this year, and they do predict it to be around 4,100 square miles. This is the area in the Gulf of Mexico where fertilizer builds up and creates an environment for lots of aquatic plants to thrive. And those plants thrive and plants, of course, need air to breathe. So they're sucking the oxygen out of the air, which means the fish and whatnot can't also get it. So they do believe that this dead zone this year could be around 20% larger than last year, but still smaller than average. Remember again last year, that long drought across much of the Corn Belt stopped uh, effectively a lot of nutrients from leaving farms. There was no water to carry it into the rivers and down to the Mississippi. And uh, because of that, we're going to be a little bit larger than last year, but still smaller than average. Things to keep an eye on as we get deeper into summer. We've also got some news out of Minnesota. That state 
recently proposed the Safe Workplaces for Meat and Poultry Processing Workers. One of the first states to really have an above and beyond packing house workers bill of rights, and this is now in effect in Minnesota. Uh, late last week, Governor Tim Waltz signed this piece of legislation, and it includes uh, things like requiring companies to provide notice of workers' compensation rights, uh, you know, more posters up on the wall. It establishes new workplace safety procedures, and uh, they have to include annual training requirements and new safety rules for public health emergencies, obviously something that has been top of mind since the coronavirus outbreak. It also, and this is, I think, the part that's interesting, it limits work quotas in specific warehouse distribution centers, among other, a few other different rules and employees will be able to access the data compiled about their own work speed and uh, that data will be protected uh, from them. It also ensures they get their meal, rest, and restroom breaks because of management imposed quotas and the law covers meatpacking organizations that have 100 or more employees within the state of Minnesota. So it's that size requirement that is going to be exempting most of those smaller uh, lockers and processing facilities across rural Minnesota. Well, processing facilities are in the news again. We heard about it last year in Sioux Falls. This year, it's Denver. A citizen-proposed ordinance would make it illegal to construct, maintain, or use a meat processing facility in Denver. That ordinance isn't on the ballot yet, but their backers are fighting for it. We'll see if it could have the legs to get across the finish line. Thanks for listening to AOA, folks. Tune in tomorrow. We'll talk with Arlen Suderman about what's moving in these markets. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Welcome to the 2023 corn sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength, a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.